Thank you again for the welcome to Terrell Road Bible Chapel. As I was introduced myself, I'm Uncle Russ, for people that are new, and I'm glad to be here. I understand that you're going through uh, a, a series, a reading in the book of Philippians with this theme, uh, A Life Worthy. I think that's a good theme. And as I read these uh, three or four verses, I'm kind of glad there's only four verses. I prefer shorter compared to longer. Um, this analogy of uh, team sport came to mind. And I thought of rugby, now, and I know that it's not the best American sport, but get over that. Just the idea about team sport for Americans is big. I'm not an American, but, I, but I've watched. I don't know of any other nation as sport-crazed, fanatical about sport, team sports as America. None. For example, just the NFL, football. I guess today there'll be 16 games going on, I assume. Maybe 14, but 16. Stadia. 100,000 people who paid, they're expensive, these seats. My brother is going to uh, maybe, or he went, no, he's going to a, a uh, New England Patriots game, and it's way up in the corner of the end zone, and his, and his daughter got it for him because she's working now in Boston. Like $240 for a terrible seat. So, I don't know of any other nation, like America, that is crazed about sport. Let's just look at football, because rugby is really the grandfather of football. Um, the number of colleges that have some stadia bigger than the NFL, that have alumni who travel on a weekend and must drop several thousand dollars to support Old Miss or to support the Cardinals or to support whoever your team is, the Princeton Tigers. Phenomenal. And at the high school level, right over here, brand new pitch. Fantastic. Marching band. Drummer. Just the whole tradition of team sport in America. It's bigger than anywhere else in the world. Fanatic is the best way to talk about it. And so, I hope you're okay with rugby. Talking about it. By the way, right as we're speaking, the World Cup of Rugby is on right now. And the USA is there. And the USA has been the best, Im best improved team in rugby in the last four years. Four years ago, they were at the World Cup. They were ranked maybe 22nd. Now they're ranked maybe 12th or 10th. So, rugby's on the move in America. The Apostle Paul was in Rome. He was in the part of the world where sport was really big. So, he does use analogies of sport and the athlete and the soldier. So, I, I think it's okay to think about athletics, um, team athletics or individual athletics, as we're thinking about lives that are worthy, and what are some examples 
that we have in everyday life that might just remind us or encourage us to be living the kind of life that the Apostle Paul thought was worth living. And I wanted us just to read these scriptures. Remember, Paul, he is in Rome. He's not in the stadia. He's not enjoying the Colosseum. He's not enjoying the Circus Maximus. He's under lock and key. He's, he's, un, he's in chains in some sense, so he's limited. And he's writing these letters, his powerful letters, to his friends, to people who he had met before. And so he says at the end of what we have of chapter 1, Only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that, all of this, from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Father, thank you for your word. Christ, thank you for coming, bringing us salvation and spirit. We pray you'd be at work in our lives through the word. Amen. Rugby. In 1840 in England, in the school called Rugby, they were playing football, what we call soccer, and one student just thought, I'll just, I'll just pick up the ball and start running with it. And hence, the game of rugby started. Um, in about eight, 1860, the first game of kind of football actually was played at the University of Toronto, where I work. Um, a little bit later, there was a game between uh, Princeton and Rutgers, actually. Now, if you were to go to that game, it was a lot more like soccer. They kind of, and it was like a mob. It was just like as many players on each side as possible. Physical is allowed, and you have a round ball, and whoever can kick it the most times into a net wins the game. That was the early form of football. The first game of rugby was in 1874, and it was at Harvard University in Cambridge, and a visiting team came from Montreal, McGill University, and they played two games. The score of the first game was 0-0. The score of the second game was 3-0. So rugby was a little bit more dignified. Um, fewer players per side. Uh, no equipment. And um, kind of the physical contact was a little bit more controlled. The early rules of both rugby and football remain a little bit uncertain. 
Um, rugby had a, had a kind of a growth spurt in 1905 when Yale University felt that football was too, too violent. And so rugby kind of gained a lot of support. Uh, in 1920 and 1924, USA won the gold medal in rugby in France in both years. So there is a long history of rugby in America. So, a little bit about rugby. In rugby, there's room for piano players, people that are finesse people, who can run fast, who can deke in and out, and people can barely even touch them. In rugby, there's room for the piano movers, people who are just good at moving big objects and refraining from being moved themselves. Uh, rugby's nothing to do with gender or sex. Women play rugby. They play it very well. They play it very hard. And rugby is okay for kids too. All levels, all genders, all the time. And it is, it is an epic struggle. Fundamentally, it's an epic battle to move the ball, like football, over the goal line and, and to get a try, to get a touchdown. That's the object of the game. Paul is talking here about us being worthy, his audience being worthy of the gospel. And we'll pay a bit of attention to what does he mean by the gospel? Because often when we think of the gospel, we think of it in an important sense, an essential part, which is getting the word out, talking about Christ dying on the cross, the importance of repentance and believing in him for eternal salvation. That's an essential part of the gospel, but it's not everything that Paul had in mind when he talked about the gospel. And so Paul is saying, I want you to be worthy. So I thought about this, again, using the analogy of sport, because I myself self am a closet fanatic of sports. I don't watch them because I, it's just too much time. But I follow sport, the results, the players, some of the politics, and some of the business aspects of sport. So when I think about worthy, I think, because I'm a Canadian, I think about ice hockey because that's kind of our sport. It's cold in Canada. It's easier to make ice surfaces. And I know that of every young athlete in Canada, male or female, who plays ice hockey, and there's a lot playing. By the way, there's more uh, Canadians enlisted in soccer now than ice hockey. But the thing is, the biggest honor, the most worthy prize goes to the people who get elected to play for Team Canada. And unlike other sports, in Canada, at least our perception is, if you're playing for your country, there's only one thing to do and win the gold medal. Silver is not worth it. Once you don't make it to the final game, you actually they'll actually lose the bronze medal. They will not even play well. Everything is just to win the gold medal. And of course, we don't always win. Canada doesn't always win in ice hockey. But to be worthy, if you're a Canadian athlete, would be to be chosen to wear the maple leaf and play 
ice hockey, and you feel so worthy that the only thing that you're expected to do is win the gold medal. Second is, it's as if you weren't even on the team. Now, I tried to think of the same for the USA, which is, as I say, the most sports-crazed nation I know of. And, of course, in football, it's not really a global sport. Baseball is getting better. But I did think about the fastest-growing sport in, in the world. And when I think of America, I think basketball. Whenever the America's playing a team sport, if they're basketball, I just know they're expected to win the gold medal. Nothing else matters. It's a terrible failure when the USA doesn't win the gold medal. And they usually win. But of course, those that are worthy to play for Team USA in basketball, uh, you know, doesn't matter whether your name is Tim Duncan, Allen Iverson, sometimes they don't win. But they're worthy to put on that jersey for America. In rugby, there's one nation like that, and that's New Zealand. Small nation, 5 million people. Every kid who starts playing rugby, they want to play for the All Blacks. And the All Blacks are just, in the last 100 games that they've played, think of this, they might have lost six games. So they usually, they're expected to win. They've won the last two World Cups. But they don't always win. They don't. In fact, a few years ago, they were playing in Chicago, Soldier Field against Ireland, and they actually lost that game. So to be worthy means that you are deemed valuable. You've got skills. You've got some thing characteristic about you that is really uh, worth living for, worth trying hard to obtain. Um, you're of value. You have skills. You have practiced. You have been the kind of person that is required to be at the very, very top, at least in athletics. In the Christian life, it's all about who we are. It's, it's the manner of who we are. To use the analogy, as I've heard from Doug Hagen many times, Paul talks about it as your walk. It's what you do all the time. When you wake up, when you're washing, when you go and you take out the trash, when you're going to school, when you're going to the place of work, when you're punching the clock. For the, for the Christian, the manner of life is everything. For Paul, it was everything. It wasn't where you were because Paul was in prison. He wasn't doing miracles anymore. He wasn't filling the Europagus anymore. He was in prison. He was limited with his space, maybe his light, maybe his, his, uh, his food. But he was still being who he was. He was still preaching the gospel. He was still encouraging other Christians. So he said... I want you to be worthy. I want your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel. Christ came. Christ lived a worthy life, a perfect life. Christ modeled mission for us. 
and he suffered and he died and he rose again and he ascended into heaven and he's coming back again. And, and for Paul, that was the gospel. Everything. And as I've said earlier, this is not a... Paul uses this expression all the time. Here he is in Ephesians, I want you to walk in a manner, manner worthy. It's something that you've been called to. Something that is, is in your new DNA. Something that you should be privileged, like putting on that USA jersey. Think about it. You put on the jersey. There's an expectation for you, and if you're an American and you're playing basketball, the expectation is that you're going to win the gold medal. You are going to do your best, and because of the resources that you have, you should win. Calling by which you've been called. And now he defines what part of the gospel was. What is the calling? What have we been called to do or be? And remember, for Paul, the gospel was more than simply the, the proclamation of the good news. That was essential, but it, it, it was not everything. It was being humble, being gentle, being patient, being at one with the Spirit, testifying the fact that in Christ there's only one body. Josh was mentioning that earlier. We are at one today in this place here in New Jersey with every other believer in the whole world who confesses Jesus as Lord. One spirit, one body. So for Paul, the walk is keeping all those things in the back of your head all the time. When he was writing to the church at, at Colossae, the same analogy, walking worthy. Something that you are pleasing your father Works are important. We make a big, big thing as Protestants that we're not saved by works. Amen. But as Protestants, as, <laughs> as people who are following the apostles, we should remember, Paul said, you are saved to, good, to, to do good works. You're saved by grace through faith, according to Paul writing to Titus, in order that you would do good works. And so... If you have a problem with your neighbor who thinks that he's visiting old people and shoveling their driveway and bringing them food because they're shut-ins, and you're thinking in the back of your mind, oh, he's only doing that because he's part of the Greek Orthodox Church, and as part of their church, the, the more works you do, the better you're going to be off, or maybe it's going to be less time in purgatory, or maybe you're going to make it. If that's what you're thinking, uh, you're probably not thinking the right thing. You should be thinking, um, those are the kind of works I should be doing, and more. Because if this person doesn't really know the gospel and doesn't know the Lord, if you think that's true, then why, why wouldn't we be doing it at least that much or even better? Part of the gospel, part of, part of being walking is enduring. Being patient and giving thanks. And if there's one thing I want you to remember about walking in a worthy way, it's the idea about enduring. It's the idea about being engaged and enduring. 
Those two things. And for me, the game of rugby is, it's like that. It's a team sport. There aren't a lot of superstars in rugby. There just aren't. Different players, different sizes. Some of them, they, they've just got numbers. There's no names on the back of the jerseys. Uh, sometimes you may not even see who touches the ball. But they're in the game. They're essential. They are sort of like foot soldiers. Some of them star at the very edge of the field, and you'll see them sprint down the sideline, but it's those people that are in the middle of the field, and they're just pushing the whole way and tackling the whole time. They're enduring, and they're in the game. Because I have been old enough to witness people of my age who were saved when I was saved, who were my examples when I was saved at camp, who led me to Christ, who were actually attracting me to the gospel because I saw them and their way of life and what they were doing, and they have fallen away. They have stopped believing. They have become agnostics. They have become, some of them, atheists. I've seen that. Next generation. I have kids. I have five kids, beautiful kids. I have a lot of nephews and nieces, lots of them. And I pray for them. And I've tried to model for them the Christian life. Tried. But as I observe them and as I listen to them, I can see for some of them, they are not enduring. Things trouble them. The judgment of God troubles them. Troubles me too. The fact that maybe Paul didn't write Ephesians. The fact that maybe John didn't write the book of the Revelation. So these scholarly textual issues bother them. Well, they bother me too. They really do. The idea about those who ha- who've never heard the idea about Christian, about origins, where we came from. What's this all about our DNA and the DNA of, of apes? And what's, this, what's it all about the age of the universe? That bothers them. It's, it's troubling to me too. It's not, it's not always that clear. However, however, Jesus came in the flesh by the virgin. That's, a, that's, a, that's not easy either. God is the creator of the universe. That's troubling to some people. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose again, the resurrection. That's troubling to some people because it's a miracle. Well, as a scientist, it's troubling for me too. But I'm, I've decided the disciple is one who is willing to follow Christ to the end. Some people have lost their, their marriages. Some people have lost their health. Some people's kids have all gone, gone astray. Some people are suffering with cancer. There's all kinds of things, painful things, that would make you want to give up. 
and I'm saying to you, if it's one lesson that you can learn from rugby and from the Apostle Paul, remember, he's in prison now. He's not going anywhere, and things are going to get worse. Not better for Paul. He seems to say here that he's going to see them again and all that, but for him, things were getting worse. He would not see them again. Giving endure, uh, being in, enduring, being patient, and giving thanks, and standing firm. In rugby, you stand firm. We're going to go through what happens in some of the games with the world champions and, and what they do to intimidate you. And in rugby, you stand firm. You have your line, you stand firm. When you are defending, you're all in a line. You're standing firm. There's not a lot of backup. When someone comes to run through you, you tackle them. Because if you don't tackle them, they've got a lot of free turf to start running when no one's there. So you hold your line. And that's what we're to do. Like Paul says in Ephesians, he's saying to the Philippians, I want you to be unified. One spirit, one mind, side by side. And when they play rugby, you have to be a team guy. You can't be a superstar. You can't say, practice. I don't need practice. I'm the best guy in the NBA. You can't afford to say that. Not in rugby. And so the question for us, if you, we're walking worthy, we're in Christ, we're part of his church for whom he died, over what issues, doctrinal issues, are you willing to stand up and to make a protest over? That's my question for you. It's the question for myself. Given that there's one faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit, over what points are you willing to stand up and be prepared to separate yourself, to split the church, to create some havoc, to create some chaos in order that the truth is going to be coming out? I've thought, a long and hard about that. Paul wants us to be standing side by side. Over what matters am I going to stand up and move away from my brothers and sisters and say, I'm protesting? As I've said before, when I was younger, I believed a lot more things about what was true for the church. The local church. Remember, we are part of a tradition that prides itself in being different from the other churches in how we do things. Now think about that. Not in what we believe. Not in the doctrines. The Christian brethren have been always orthodox. Orthodox, lowercase o. Always. High Christology. We, we've always believed in the Apostles' Creed. Big time. And it's been some other parts of practice or doctrine that we've been prepared to stand up and say we're different and sometimes we're better and so and and so I'm not prepared really to do that as much anymore I think it's good to have one's convictions it's good to try to practice them but in the big picture looking back at church history um, I think we have to be careful about writing tracks writing books 
on such things which have divided and will divide the church. We need to stand side by side. We need to be prepared to face the foe. Other people, other believers in other churches and other denominations usually are not the foe. The evil one is the foe. Other people frighten us. Wall Street frightens us. Yeah. Secular education frightens us, or it can. Um, not being as smart as other people can frighten us. Not being as good as other people in the arts can frighten us. Paul is telling us not to be frightened. As we look at the enemies that we have, and we have lots of them. Secularism is an enemy. Yeah? Um, we live in a free society where every religion is tolerated. That's been part of America since day one. It's part of Canada. We have many faiths now contending in the public arena, in the political arena, many of them, with some ideas that are not biblical. And so that may frighten you. That may frighten you. Some new agenda, some new curriculum at school may frighten you. Well, Paul says, do not be frightened. Think back on history. There's been a lot of things that have challenged God's people. Lots of things. War is one of them. Pestilence is one of them. Uh, terrible, terrible um, monarchs and uh, kings and leaders, fascists, who have, who have been willing to slaughter people by the millions. The church has faced all of that. And Paul says, don't be frightened. Don't let your opponents frighten you. And so I just want to show one little clip here, which is from this year's World Cup. Yesterday, New Zealand played their first game against South Africa. And something that New Zealand does, even though they're the best in the world, they do this thing before the game to frighten you. And it's, it's from their history, from the Maori people. The Brits came and the Maori were there and there was kind of a fight that was kind of a draw. So the Maori, like most of us, can be warlike and warriors. So before every game, the All Blacks give you a little thing just to remind you that they're good. So I'm just going to show you this clip. It's, it's under two minutes. If you don't like to be scared, then close your eyes. But this is what they do to you before every game. So let's see how this works. Here it is. So this is the South Africa team. They just stand still. They're standing in their line. Try not to be afraid. This is for real. They're just trying to scare you.
There you go. That's it. So that's the beginning of the game. So you shouldn't really, that's called the haka. Now, just, by, just a little bit of an anecdote. The guy who was leading that, the little guy who was making all the faces, uh, my son moved to New Zealand about five years ago. <laughs> that guy's from his hometown. <laughs> okay. The idea is in the gospel, those people that are trying to scare us, the, the big people with the big egos and the big pockets and all the power and all of that, um, Paul says that there's going to be a clear sign to them that they are losing, that they are going to be destroyed in, inside. They're going to have a clear sign that they are being destroyed. Whereas we, we are being saved. When you think of salvation, of course, you think of the Salvation Army. And they're helping people, bringing people up out of the gutter, giving them some clothes, giving them some food, playing them some good music. Um, what, what's the clear sign? I think the clear sign is, and I could be wrong, the clear sign is that we are one. Yeah. We are sticking together. We are being patient. We're being humble. We are, we are the salt of the earth. We are counterculture. We're not following the politics of the day and being driven by money and greed and sex and power and all the things that they're driven by. That's going to be a clear sign to them that eventually they'll be destroyed and that we, through the gospel of grace and by the Spirit, are going to be saved. Finally, and I'm going to go through this quickly, is that it's just not enough to believe the gospel, to put up your hand at a... At a um, at a large gathering of evangelists. It's not enough just to walk up the aisle. It's not enough just to sign your name on the four spiritual laws. That's important, not just to believe in Christ, which is essential, but also to suffer for him. Four years ago, um, a, a team like the USA beat the number two team. Japan, where the World Cup is being held now, actually beat South Africa which would be kind of like Canada beating USA in basketball. It kind of just never happens. And they did it because they believed their coach, Eddie Jones, who's an Aussie who took the Australians to the World Cup final, and he took a nation like Japan that was as good as Canada, 20th, and they actually beat the number two team in the world. Because they believed in Eddie. They believed in his system. So... If you are in Christ, part of that is that we have to suffer. In rugby, it's not easy. I don't know why they don't get more charley horses or more concussions. They do get that. It's a very rough game. And it is a game of conflict. It's, he, Paul likens it to the conflict maybe of the war. And when I think of the war, I think of the first war. And all the men in the trenches and being cold and rotting feet. I think of the Civil War and all the men there who just were languishing and getting, getting destroyed and muddy and not 
not enough nourishment, not enough water. It is, it is a place where you are engaging all the time that we're to share as a soldier of Jesus Christ. It's 12 o'clock. I'm going to leave it there. I just want to end up, just end by reminding you that uh, it's easy to fall down if you put a high standard on being worthy. Very easy, because you, w- you will fail. We will fail. But we, remembering that Jesus is the one who's worthy, he's the one who's worthy as the creator of the universe. He's the one who's worthy to receive our praise and our glory and our honor because he's ransomed. He's brought people out of the pit, out of the dark places. He's made them one. Um, and so he's worthy to be praised as one who is our redeemer. So I, I just want to leave that with you. Um, we should take our calling as Christians very seriously. And when we fail, and we will, remember that Jesus is our champion. He's the one who we need to follow. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you again for our time together. Our meditation we've had on your word. Lord, we find it uh, difficult to be living in a world and not be, be consumed by it. Help us to see the values of the gospel. Help us to practice uh, by the power of the Spirit what it means to be walking in the Spirit. And we pray for our picnic, for safety. Uh, We pray for a time of of enjoyable fellowship with, with families and with friends, just enjoying the good things that you give us each day. Amen.